0: Welcome to the Vertiguise show. I'm Eric and I'm Sean and we are the Vertiguise. We're here to check out the dark side of DC by recapping and reviewing some Vertigo comics starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. And today we've got a couple of Preacher issues for you direct from the the pens of Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon. That's right and featuring the cover art of Glenn Fabry and the colors of Matt Hollingsworth. Let's not forget him. So to briefly recap where we had been in Preacher. I don't know. Where had we been? Jesse Custer, a Southern Preacher, has been possessed by a creature called Genesis. A Preacher and a Creature, that's right. I guess that brings us pretty much up to date. (laughs) He is wandering the United States with his ex-girlfriend, now girlfriend, Tulip. Right, they are back together. Despite his doing his damnedest to piss her off, By abandoning her in a hotel room in France. Where they were on their way to rescue the third member of the party, Cassidy, an Irish vampire. He was being shot a bunch by an Italian gentleman. Yeah, now that gentleman worked for the Grail, a secret organization headed by the Ruthless Hair Star, which wants to make Jesse the Messiah. And then kill him because he slashed Star's forehead with a knife. Not really his forehead, more like his head head. His whole scalp. Right. Most of the region. Yeah. It's <laughs> a regrettable choice of words. <laughs> I don't know. When you just when you say the region, it just makes me makes me feel uncomfortable. Now, it's important to know that in the past, in one of their first adventures, Jesse D. Custer told one Sheriff Hugo Root to go fuck himself. And he used the word of God, a power that Genesis gives him, that when he tells people to do things. And he has to decide to use it. It's not every time he speaks. Uh, But they do it. Right. Sheriff Root then attempted to accomplish the anatomically impossible and was so severely wounded in the attempt that he ultimately took his own life. That is true. When we say that Jesse is wandering the country, he is looking for God because he thinks the world is very fucked up and somebody needs to be made to answer for it. And he has already run into God a couple of times, or more accurately, Tulip and Cassidy have each run into God, who sort of helped them out of tough spots that he had sort of had a hand in putting them into, and gave Jesse a warning to back off. Yeah, but specifically it's important to know that Jesse wants to hold God to account for abandoning humanity, because God took his leave of heaven basically as soon as they heard the news that Genesis had been born. Yeah, that's right. Seemingly in fear of Genesis. So, for issue number 29, Old Familiar Faces, we have a cover here which shows a really scary guy clad all in leather. I obscured wrote... Obscured by a motorcycle helmet with a big-ass gun. I've written a badass on a motorcycle. And there's a cloud of fire in the air as he's apparently just fired his revolver. Yeah. Yeah. So we open on a truck stop where this cartoonishly evil trucker is about to drag a waitress, Lurleen, into the restroom. Is that a MAGA hat? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) It is a red trucker hat. Give it 20 years and it probably would be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, this is basically looks to be an attempted rape in progress in a few seconds, but it's being played in a really sort of it's being played for comedy. Yeah, it's a sort of comically blunt presentation of that theme. Yeah, like I, a, she says I don't want to go to the bathroom and he replies I got enough want for both of us, honey. Don't you worry none. Her coworker apparently attempts to scare the guy off brandishing a whisk. Right, and we have here the trucker punches him and we see feet flying backwards through the air yeah and the reason that the book is able to play this for comedy and it works as well as it does which is to say not great but it's not a complete train wreck either is because this guy's attempt at violence is derailed by a somewhat ludicrous character right the scenes in the truck stop are intercut with this motorcycle badass that we saw on the cover riding along he sees what's happening Walks in. The trucker turns around from having punched the co-worker as he hears, *kachak*, And he sees the biker with a big-ass revolver right in his face. The biker gestures for the door. Yes, sir. Right away. And he runs out. Lurleen is delighted by this turn of events. Oh, sir, thank you, thank you, thank you. How can I ever repay you? No problem, eh? He takes off the helmet, and Lurleen loses her lunch. It's Arsface. Sean, who's Arsface? Okay, Arsface is Hugo Root's son. He had attempted suicide with a shotgun and uh, failed, leaving him with a severely disfigured, sort of centrally puckered up face. And this brings us to our title page, Old Familiar Faces. It's worth noting that in the first story arc of Preacher, way back at the very beginning, Cassidy said his face looked kind of like an arse, giving him the name which he has used since. And after Hugo Root committed suicide, space swore vengeance on Jesse Custer. Okay, so we cut to a different diner where our heroes, the uh, central three characters, Cassidy, Tulip, and Jesse D. Custer, are having some dinner. I want to point out here that one of them orders French onion soup, implying that Tulip is still a vegetarian. I was actually going to point out the exact opposite. I was going to say, the three orders are French onion soup, a cheeseburger, and a chicken pot pie. None of those are vegetarian foods. French onion soup's not a vegetarian food? It's made with beef stock, isn't it? I suppose it's made with beef stock, but it doesn't contain meat. I think French onion is what she ordered in the first diner when she said she was a vegetarian at the beginning of the comic. Well, if you say so, French onion soup is a beef soup. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it is. But yeah, we both had that thought, I guess. The cheeseburger is presumably Cassidy's, since he likes bloody beef. There is... And hates gravy, as we will soon find out. Some friction between Tulip and Cassidy here, left over from what transpired between them in the previous story arc. He asks for the sugar, because to reach for it would require him to put his hand into direct sunlight, and Tulip says that he can get it for himself. Right, now in the previous story, after being rescued from the grail... Where he had been captured in a foolhardy attempt to save Tulip's life, Cassidy confessed his love to her in secret, and nobody has told Jesse about this. Yeah, she did, however, tell her good friend Amy, who proceeded to treat Cassidy like the rat he was being. Yeah, and she also told Cassidy that by no means was it happening. Right. So they are chatting about their mission. Jesse wants to head out west in search of the Navajo, who he believes can help him unlock Knowledge that Genesis has that has not been shared with him. He was instructed to do this by an angel during the Masada story a while back. Yeah, that's right. We're basically gearing up for our first big bit of trouble for our characters since Masada. But we've had several issues of... Not filler, but several issues of kind of downtime since then. We had... A flashback where Cassidy told us about his life. We had the introduction of Amy, which was, you know, mostly a story about the group hanging out, drinking in bars and talking. Yeah. And we also had, if you chose to read them in this order, the specials about the uh, Saint of Killers and Cassidy's past. Yeah. So it's been a while since the comic fell into the watching the good guys kick some ass mold that we so enjoyed. These two issues are sort of the first half, the building half of the next big fight. Right, what's going to be the New Orleans story arc. Now, on the next page, we get what I think is kind of a common trope in fantasy and speculative fiction, especially like urban fantasy and speculative fiction, which is the sort of lampshade joke, I call it. Oh, yeah, you mean here where Cassidy points out that the whole quest they're on is really weird? Yeah, he just sort of enumerates exactly all the reasons why the story is ridiculous or bizarre, and the three characters make light of it. That's something that you see a ton in genre fiction. Yeah, Cassidy points out that this whole thing is weird, Jesse points out that Cassidy is a vampire, and Tulip expresses her ongoing displeasure with Cassidy by pushing his coffee into the sunlight. You know, she says, seeing as we're talking about recovering memory and that sort of thing, have you thought about seeing a shrink? And Cassidy and Jesse both look at her like she has two heads. Well, shrinks her for assholes. Couldn't agree more, mate. Assholes. Tulip asks why, and Jesse says, Hmm, because all they do is charge a goddamn fortune to listen to folks spew out crap they ought to be able to figure for themselves, or else convince them their granddaddy fucked him in the ass, and before you ask no, grandma made soup out of him before I was born. Aye, and that repressed memory stuff's bollocks anyway. It's just a dickhead license for rich people, you know. Me Das mocked me, so it's okay for me to act a prick. Right. So who turned the volume of ignorance up to eleven? Yeah, I kind of liked here how Tulip is is not having their ignorance. Although repressed memory stuff is kind of bollocks, as yeah, he said. That was a definite problem with psychology in the in the nineties. Especially as it appeared in speculative fiction. But she's right, and good for her for kind of standing up against the absurdity of what they're saying here, although on the next page she kind of caves rather easily. Yeah, well she points out here that Jesse is willing to undergo whatever drugs or mysticism that the Navajo might suggest for him, but not see a professional. Yep. Why? Because shrinks are for assholes. I give up, she says. Now Cassidy has an idea. Voodoo. You want to know what's in your head? Voodoo. I know a bloke in New Orleans who can do this thing like possession, almost, where he steps into your mind and looks around and finds out what's wrong. It's fucking amazing. Right, Cassidy doesn't know whether this is an example of real magic or just some kind of hypnosis, but he's pretty sure it works. People come out of this trance knowing what their problems are. And Jesse's into it. New Orleans is a lot closer than Arizona. And more appealing. Tulip reminds them that Cassidy's last old friend turned out to be a serial killer. Well nobody's perfect. No, she says grumpily. So we find our characters leaving the diner, and Tulip is annoyed that they're going to do all the driving at night to mollify Cassidy's inability to sit in the sun. I mean, why can't we just put him in the back seat and throw a sheet over him? At this moment, Cassidy turns up in the vehicle he has procured. Do you want to say it? It's a fucking monster truck. (laughs) I was thinking specifically pussy wagon, but okay. That's what they call the truck in Kill Bill, right? Yeah. Okay. I think that's, like, actually Quentin Tarantino's car or something. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I am 100% sure that Jules' wallet, which says bad motherfucker on it, was Tarantino's wallet at the time. Oh, okay, maybe that's the bit that I'm thinking of. Right. Although, maybe it's both. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Could be. Could be. Yeah, so Cassidy has this massive purple pickup truck with flame decals. Monster truck is not far off. Meanwhile, in another diner, Arseface is regaling the waitress with his complete history and scaring away every other customer who comes in in the process. Yeah, Arsface says that his father was a good man until Jesse Custer and his vile mob destroyed him. Now, this brings us to what might be one of the best panels in the history of the. <laughs> this of is the one comic of my favorite book. panels. <laughs> in his imagining of Jesse Tulip and Cassidy. Jesse is setting fire to an American flag, and Cassidy is giving the finger while wearing a t-shirt that says, I heart Libya. <laughs> right, he describes Cassidy as some kind of foreign guy, and apparently doesn't remember where he's from. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he recaps that Jesse destroyed his father, and he took the name that Cassidy gave him, Arseface, and is out to get his vengeance on Custer. He'll look up, and the last thing he'll see will be me. Justice, vengeance, Arsface. Of course, everything that Arsface says is translated from his near indecipherable speech because being that his face is all messed up, he can't really enunciate very well anymore. Right, his jaw and teeth are basically destroyed. He can't speak well. In this issue, he is given subtitles. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Back in the pickup, we have the gang arguing over music. Yeah, they can't agree what tape to put on. There's sort of like a montage here. Every time they put on something that one person loves, everyone else hates it. Except the one thing they can agree on is apparently fucking flash dance. Right. So Cassidy wants the clash. Jesse says you can't go wrong with the king. And Tulip's music of choice is Nine Millimeter Goes Bang by Boogie Down Productions. Cassidy retorts by referring to her as MC Turnip. (laughs) And the page ends with all of them singing along to Flashdance together. Sometime later, they stop for a beer to celebrate being out of Jersey. Unbeknownst to them, a figure in black motorcycle leathers and a motorcycle helmet is approaching the bar. Jesse says he's glad to be headed south. It's like going home. Tulip and Cassidy give him some static on that. They remind him that both Angelville, where he grew up, and Anvil, the town where he was a preacher, were both terrible. If I'd had to face that pack of goat rapists every Sunday, I'd have put a bleeding gun in me mouth. Liquor store sold a less drastic alternative. Besides, you're exaggerating both of you. Point is, the South is generally where I'm happiest. I've been to California, I've been to the East Coast, I've been all through the desert. Hell, I even went to goddamn France once. But there ain't anywhere I feel more at ease than Texas. Sometimes home is just home, and there's no use fighting it. I thought that was kind of interesting. The way he puts it, like, I've even been to France once, as if they didn't know about that time. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I want to point out here that Cassidy retorts, I don't know, I've successfully fought mine all my life. Arseface seems um, not to notice them walking past to go to the bathroom. Yeah, which is just... <laughs> which is hilarious. He rides up with all the buildup, and then he just walks right past them. Yeah, I guess. It's kind of difficult to tell especially since we can't see his eyes if he's got a plan here like if he's seen them yet or if this whole thing is just happenstance. Oh, I see I see what you mean. The sort of punchline on this is the panel at the top of the next page showing him opening the door on a bathroom stall. Okay, if you saw that as a punchline, I didn't find it particularly funny. Jesse meanwhile is going on about the Texas sky and about the history. You ever go to San Antonio? Hell, they got the Alamo right there in the middle of town. That is foreshadowing. The Alamo is going to play a major role in a storyline that happens later in the book. Cool, I did not know that. Jesse also prefers the food in the South. Biscuits and gravy are among his favorite things. You mean that gray stuff they make out of bacon fat? For Jesus' sake, Jesse, it tastes like fucking semen. Or, so I'd imagine. But Jesse says the best thing about the South is how life can get interesting real fast. Tulip says that's less the state of Texas and more the state of Jesse Custer. Then they start talking about God. Yeah, Cassidy is saying that their quest is too big, too abstract. I know what you are saying and everything, but I still can't get me head around it. Finding God, punishing God. It's too big, too abstract. Yeah, that's what you said he said. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I call him like I see him. <laughs> he did wrong. He fucked people up. He has to be made to face it. You look at it that way, he's just another son of a bitch. Cassidy points out that God is the creator of the universe, to which Jesse replies all the more reason he should do right by it. It doesn't matter what they believe anymore, Jesse says. They know God exists from experience. But after creation, he quit on them, and Jesse calls that a betrayal. As well as that, adds Tulip, he killed me and brought me back to life just to try and scare Jesse. He made my death a completely meaningless violation. I think he's a piece of shit. While they finish up their beer, Cassidy goes off to fill up the truck, Tulip to buy smokes, and Jesse to the restroom, where he walks right by face in the stall, on scene. Yeah, although one wonders if this is where he first becomes aware of them, because Jesse does speak. He says, God damn it, some things never change, when faced with the air dryer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now here's a bit that I like. As he heads out of the bathroom, he runs into Tulip, who has the cigarettes. Sir is cancer. Yeah, I liked that too. As they head out of the bar, Tulip suggests that Jesse won't see a shrink because he's insecure. Haven't we already had a conversation about insecurity? Yeah, and she says as much. She's like, relax, Reverend, I've heard this rant. When he says, Did it ever occur to you that what you call insecure, I call not taking any shit? They're interrupted by, Jesus, fuck, Cassidy points behind them, where Arseface is pointing a big-ass gun at Jesse's head. Time for the of effort. Meanwhile, in New Orleans, another gun. A woman is pointing a gun, pulling the trigger on empty chambers over and over. You son of a bitch! Fuck you! And as she steps closer and closer to her target, we see that it is an old Polaroid photograph of Cassidy. Oh shit! That brings us to Preacher Issue Thirty. Good times rolling. On the cover, we have sort of a noisy club or concert. Jesse and Cassidy having a great time with Arsface between them. It almost kind of looks like Mardi Gras. Oh, yeah, because this woman is definitely wearing some kind of feathered carnival hat. And there's like a mascot behind them, too. Jesse has on a shirt that says, I'm with Stupid. Cassidy has on a shirt that says, I'm with Ugly. And Arsface, standing in the middle, is wearing a t-shirt that says, Hi! So picking up right where we left off, Tulip draws on Arsface, ordering him to drop it. First, we get a great spread of the four principal characters in this scene. Individual panels of a detailed look of the faces of Arsface, Jesse, Tulip, and Cassidy in this moment. Yeah, Tulip showing noticeably more uh, anger and revulsion here than surprise. Yeah, I, I think she's showing a little bit more grit here than either Jesse or Cassidy as well. Tulip has her gun pointed at Arsface, but Jesse tells her there's no need. Because... it's Arsface. Tulip and Cassidy start losing it, laughing even as the guns are still being pointed. Arsface entreats them not to laugh in his usual broken English. Now Jesse is laughing too. I'm Tanya! I'm you serious! Meanwhile, in New Orleans, the woman aiming the gun at the photograph She asks someone over the phone how she'll know if the voodoo is working. The voodoo, that is to say, that she's trying to perform by pointing the gun at the photo and pulling the trigger. She reveals that she's been doing this for months. Right. Or over a month, I guess she says. Right, and we learn from the conversation that the voodoo expert is the boyfriend of the woman that she's talking to on the phone. I want to be sure the son of a bitch is suffering. I don't think it's fair for him to get away with what he did to me. And as she said this, we get a reveal... That lets us see both that this is Dee, who we first met in Cassidy Blood and Whiskey, mm-hmm. and that she's wearing an eye patch. Man, what a jerk! Yeah, Cassidy did something real bad. Back on the New Jersey border, Arseface says that Jesse killed his dad. He died. Well, I didn't exactly mean for that to happen, but as I recall, your daddy wasn't too friendly to me neither. In fact, you were to think about it, you might realize your daddy wasn't a real nice guy. And you might realize you don't really want to shoot anybody, too. We get a flashback here. Arsface is remembering his father beating him with a belt. As in front of Jesse, he uh, tears up and lowers the gun, falls to his knees. I'm sorry. I'm sorry too, son. It's okay. Inside, we find the gang buying Arsface a cup of coffee. Which he leaves most of on the table. Jesse asks his real name, and his answer is... Uffa! An attempt to say Arsface. Yes, that's what he's saying. Although his dialogue in the last issue, and earlier in this issue, was subtitled, in this scene it is not. Anyway, they reach the arrangement that they will give him a ride to New Orleans. The Big Easy. Right, he'd like to go home to Texas, but Jesse offers to take him as far as New Orleans. Excited, Arsface goes to get his stuff. Tulip asks why they're doing this. Look, that guy is the dumbest most pathetic son of a bitch on this earth. He is a testament to God's sense of humor. He is arseface. But he's a scared lonely kid a long way from home and I just ain't got it in me to turn my back on the poor bastard. I don't see why you didn't just tell him to shoot himself, Cassidy says, reminding us of Jesse's powers. Hey, you didn't have to look in them big brown eyes. Tulip points out, I don't know why you think it's so funny. You're the one riding in the back. Suits me. And we cut to them inside the truck, and now Arseface is happily singing the song from Flashdance. And this is another example of what I complained about in our last Preacher episode. Okay. This is a joke that only makes sense if you just read the previous issue. Yeah, I guess that's true. pretty much in the same sitting. I, I had not thought of that, but that is true. So if you're reading this month to month, it doesn't make a ton of sense. In the back of the truck, under a tarp, we have Cassidy snickering. Oh, before we move on, I do want to point out that in the in the coffee shop conversation here, Tulip refers to Cassidy as McDracula. Oh, because he's Irish. Yeah. Not because he is like a fast version of Dracula. Right. No. Yeah. Not like there are five of them available on Happy Meals. Yeah, so they arrive in New Orleans and are almost immediately recognized by someone. That, 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 that that's him. Where's your fucking phone? Now, it took me a minute to realize that where's your fucking phone refers to... He's asking the waitress where the cafe's phone is, not asking his friend where his cell phone is. Yeah, because they don't have cell phones. Right. It's 1997. Yeah, so they're in New Orleans. Cassidy wants beer. Really working on that quitting drinking, huh? (laughs) Yeah, good point. RSpace agrees about the beer, even though Tulip points out he's underage. But Cassidy says no one's going to look at his ID. They also start to make arrangements to meet Cassidy's friend. Aye, oh, he's meeting us at the place, and is he in for a shock? Guess so. No, I meant at me knocking around with the clergy. Meanwhile, in a posh upscale bar, a woman who does have a cell phone... Yeah, an early cell phone. Big blocky one. She receives the call, and we recognize this as Lily. Right. She's also from Blood and Whiskey... She's sitting at a very nice bar in sunglasses and a tight dress. Right. She was a member of Les Enfants du Sang who had great connections because her father was a congressman. Yeah, that's right. We remember that. Yeah, and at the end of that story, Cassidy had killed the vampire that Les Enfants du Sang had built themselves around. Yeah, so she's got some reason to be pissed at him. She says she's glad to hear that he's back and she'll send someone over. We see on the next page who she's talking to. It's another member of the Enfance du Sang, and he is doing typical Enfance du Sang shit, hanging around in that musty old basement. Yeah, this is instantly recognizable to anyone who's read Blood and Whiskey as the Enfance du Sang uh, headquarters, the church basement that they hang out in. Yeah, and he seems to be having a naked chick lick up his blood. Well, he talks on the phone, yeah. And he's got a cell phone too, it seems. This is Jonathan, and Lily enlists him to tell Duke that Cassidy's back, and by no means to tell Mako. Mako was a guy that Cassidy had beaten up during Blood and Whiskey. Yeah, actually, he really just tossed him. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but when Lily starts calling her assistant Jonathan to get business done, I immediately went to Charlotte Pickles from Rugrats calling her assistant Jonathan... (laughs) You know, I gotta tell you, I, I don't think I could have produced the name of either Charlotte Pickles or her assistant. Fair enough. If I had been called on to do so. Before we get to the gang, we need to talk about the guy that Lily is meeting at the bar. Oh yeah, there's this guy there, he's kind of smarmy. He wants an 18-year-old single malt and a cigar. He also, from the look in his eye, seemingly wants Lily. Yeah, he comes up to her and orders her a martini. And he looks a lot like Polly Bridges, but he is definitely not a cop or a gay man. In an outdoor cafe, Tulip, Jesse, Cassidy, and Space are waiting for Cassidy's friend Xavier. Yeah, Cassidy mentions that they parted under bad terms. How bad are we talking about? You win the Millennium Falcon off him at cards? Or did you try and fuck his girlfriend or something like that, Tulip interjects. So Xavier turns up with his girlfriend Janice. Janice vaguely remembers Cassidy, though she doesn't think they've actually met. Maybe she knows him from Dee's photo? Right. He looks familiar to her, but she doesn't know why. Xavier can't stay long, so right to business. This must be a first, a minister of the Lord turning to voodoo for answers. I guess the Lord just ain't what he used to be. Jesse tries to explain the whole deal with Genesis, but he knows that it makes him sound a little shy in the hat size. It's okay. Remember, you're talking to a man who dances naked in the woods and talks to ghosts. Jesse explains that he needs to get at knowledge that Genesis, the spirit in his head, has. Xavier's never done precisely that before, but he figures they can pull it off if they get a spirit to possess Jesse. Are you frightened of snakes? Only if they dress up as werewolves. So Xavier explains his plan to have the serpent god Arpe Reposoir possess Jesse. It can see all the knowledge in his head, both Jesse's and Genesis's, and then Xavier will be able to ask it questions and get answers. And much like she did when... Cassidy and Jesse were talking about this plan in the last issue, Tulip just has to interject. No offense, but you actually believe this? There was a very, very old lady who lived a couple of blocks from where I grew up. People would go to her for cures and things, laying a trick or getting one taken off, stuff like that. Sometimes it worked, or sometimes coincidence was on her side, depending on your point of view, but people believed in it enough to keep going back. I once plucked up the courage to ask her if she believed in it. All she did was smile, this sort of knowing enigmatic smile, you know? So, do I actually believe Tulip? And then he gives her a knowing enigmatic smile. He goes on to say that he studied biochemistry and physics for seven years, heard some of what the top minds have to say, but he never heard any answers that he found more convincing than the ones that old lady gave. So they agree to meet up to do this tomorrow night, and Xavier makes to leave. Cassidy tries to bring up last time, and Xavier says, not now. That's not a conversation I want to have right now. And then, instead of ordering another drink, Tulip decides to head back to the hotel. Right, once again, she's hesitant to spend a night out spending time with Cassidy. Yeah, even before Cassidy kind of soured things between them, she tended to retire and let Cassidy and Jesse have nights out on the town together. Now, Janice has instructed Arseface that the gumbo here is to die for, and I wrote in my notes, don't give that man soup. Tulip apparently had the same idea. As she leaves, she says, besides, I am not gonna sit here and watch him eat gumbo. Yeah, exactly. She comes around to the same joke. At a bar, we find Arsface talking at length about the qualities his perfect woman would have to have. For good luck is on a part of it. Right, Cassidy interjects that he just likes tits. <laughs> Yeah, uh, now we know that he likes Tulip, actually, so he's not being entirely candid here. What do you go for, Jesse? Pretty faces. And I swear, the trouble I've been in over pretty faces. You know, your man here is a virgin, don't you? No shit. At the hotel, Tulip is reading The Wild Girls Club. This is a collection of columns by sex columnist Anka Ratakovich. Yeah, and it seems like she's either got the door or the window open and three members of the Enfants du Sang enter. Close the shutters, Millie. Hello. You assholes mess with me in any way, shape, or form, and I fucking guarantee you'll regret it. Duke replies to this by producing a switchblade. And on the next page we find Duke flying off the balcony with a bullet through his chest. Yeah, she gives another one of the Enfants du Sang one through the head, and then turns to Millie, the last one standing. Tulip's about to shoot him, but he swears they didn't intend to hurt her. Duke was just being an asshole. She asks why they were there then, and he says he can't tell her. She intimidates him by putting two bullet holes in the mirror on either side of his head. And he spills the beans. They were supposed to bring her to Jonathan, one of the Enfants Toussaint. Sang. He doesn't get far into explaining what they are, just that it's somehow Cassidy related. All right, never mind, Millie. Isn't that what he called you? I'm kind of at a loose end tonight, Millie. You're taking me to Les Enfants du Sang, after all. There's a page here where Tulip bluffs her way out of the hotel, letting the nervous super think they're running from the shooter. They're back there! Two men! Somebody killed them! Oh god, it's horrible! Call the police! Oh Jesus, I can't stand blood. Can't stand blood. What a dick! Tulip retorts once they're out of earshot. Millie wonders what the hell is up with Tulip, and she reveals that her main interest in this is the chance to learn what is up with Cassidy. Because that guy is really starting to make me wonder. Meanwhile, Cassidy and Jesse have brought Arsface to a seedy hotel. They set him up with a hooker with a bag over his face. I'm serious now. It's for your own protection. Don't take it off. There's a brief panel here of Cassidy stepping in something gross. And then we find them waiting outside for Arsface. Yeah, he's making loud sex noises. The prostitute says, hey, watch it, your bag's coming off. And then she gives a blood-curdling shriek. Right. And that brings us to the end of this issue. So another couple of slow-moving issues, although picking up some steam. Yeah, and they have plenty of uh, amusing incidents and well-written dialogue to keep the pages turning. As I've mentioned, I do sort of have the concern that this would be difficult to read month to month at the time that it was coming out. It's just one of those books that's much better collected. Sort of written for the trade? I think so. Yeah. This almost feels like an intentional jumping-on point with the way that the characters spend a significant portion of the first issue here, recapping who they are and where they've come from and what the purpose of their quest is. Yeah, and part of that is because face is coming back after such a long time. But I I think you're right. The book does have to kind of make self-conscious attempts to create good jumping-on points because I, I think I made the comment earlier, not earlier this episode, but... Fairly recently, in one of our Preacher episodes, that there's no good jumping on point for Preacher except Preacher number one. Right, it's really thick with continuity. It's, yeah, it's a heavily layered tapestry. But if you don't, if you don't have all the pieces, it's not going to fit together. Yeah, exactly. Mixed my metaphor. I was going to say place. You know, there. that's a pretty mixed metaphor. But uh... <laughs> so, did you notice that we are back in the Big Easy, and? We are back with colorist James Sinclair instead of Matt Hollingsworth. I did. I can't say I noticed that. That's a really interesting call, though. Yeah, accompanied by another colorist, Pamela Rambo. Yeah, we've seen Pamela Rambo before. She did the Saint of Killers miniseries, and James Sinclair worked on Blood and Whiskey. Right. He did the colors for the last issue of Preacher-related media where we were in new orleans and now the issue that we're back in new orleans he takes over colors again that is probably just a coincidence but maybe not yeah we didn't spend a lot of time on it with blood and whiskey but it had it had a distinct color palette among preacher stories it was a little Uh, more vampiric if you will well yeah yeah a little more goth. (laughs) it was darker and moodier that's right and especially in the one page we're back in the Enfants du Sang's basement hideout. This issue really kind of slips right back into that vampiric color palette, if you will. Mm-hmm. This is pretty much building up to be a direct sequel to Blood and Whiskey. Yeah, that's right. We've got two characters who are introduced in Blood and Whiskey coming back. And we know why one of them is pissed at Cassidy, or at least we think we can guess. Or if you've read Blood and Whiskey at least i was sort of going to wonder is it a story we can follow if we don't know if we're not familiar with those events. Right. That would be Cassidy's killing of Acarius. Yeah. But we don't know why D is pissed at him yet. Yes, except it seems that he was a very very bad boyfriend since it looked like they were about to hook up at the end of Blood and Whiskey. Yeah, that's right. And much like Tulip we are kind of left to wonder what exactly has that guy been getting up to in his past. Yeah, with the last couple issues and Cassidy's confession to Tulip, we're starting to see that his mystique of brotherly loyalty is not quite as genuine as we might have suspected. And now we're delving a little more into some unpleasantness from his past. Yeah, Cassidy is becoming a much bigger part of this book. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. He was always something of a tag-along, something of an amusing character. He didn't show up at all in the Angelville story arc. That's true. And yeah, he's kind of here. He and his actions are kind of growing in prominence. Yeah, with his confession to Tulip, we sort of now have significant and dynamic relationships amongst all three of the main characters and relationships that are going to continue to massively shape the story as it goes on. One thing that occurs to me that might be kind of interesting to talk about is we got some of this in or maybe even we got more of this in the last story arc that we covered in our previous preacher episode but does it seem to you that this big quest that the three of them are on seems to be manifesting in a lot of uh going to scenic cities and drinking in bars (laughs) yeah that's very true you know making a night of it as tulip says yeah, they're like D&D characters in that respect, right? They have adventures, but they never hesitate to stop in a bar for a night or two on the way. Right. Although Jesse does call that out in this in the first issue that we covered today. He talks about how if he can get the information from Genesis's head, they can go straight to God instead of bumbling around hoping to bump into him. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting that he should say that when Arseface's plan is to bumble around America hoping to bump into Jesse, and he does. Yeah, I suppose it's very cinematic in that respect. Characters who are looking for each other don't seem to have to look for long. Yeah. We should talk a little bit about Arseface, I suppose. I find him a very self-indulgent creation. Yeah, and he's kind of a joke in poor taste. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, And I think that that's self-conscious. Like, Garth Ennis knows that no one would ever accuse him of having good taste. <laughs> uh, and he's... You know, to a certain extent, he's he's going for shock humor with a lot of what happens in this book. Yeah, and it's not even necessarily the tastelessness that bothers me so much as the book trying to have its cake and eat it too. Play up Arseface face as a genuine figure of pathos, and then go right back to a joke where somebody sees his face and instantly vomits. Right, that's a good point. Well, like a lot of things, like Hairstar, who also is... A focus in this book of both serious drama and ridiculous gross-out comedy. Another place where we kind of talked about the same sort of phenomenon was the sort of seedy New York underbelly that we saw in the first New York story arc. Mm-hmm. What is it, John Toole? Yeah, right. Detective Toole and Detective Bridges and, and Detective Bridges' strange sexual proclivities. Right, exactly. And Garth Ennis kind of using that as a basis for jokes in poor taste but it's also a big driver of the plot yeah true you know he's he's often kind of in this position of trying to have it both ways and you know his writing i think is fairly masterful actually so i say he tries to have it both ways he mostly succeeds it's only when you think back on it that you're like wow that's kind of uncomfortable yeah yeah i think maybe maybe with Arsface the intention is that he will work both ways because Arsface is not aware of himself as a figure of pathos Arsface is doing just fine as far as he is concerned <laughs> you know he's he's not shy he's not ashamed right and he takes his quest perfectly seriously yeah yeah Uh, Even as the other characters don't take him seriously as a source of danger. Yeah. It also occurs to me that he tends to, at least in these two issues, he shows up and has very little impact on the plot. His showing up could practically have been skipped entirely to get them to New Orleans an issue quicker. I guess the thing that we get out of it is that we see Jesse resolve the situation without having to use either violence or the power of the word. Yeah, that's true. He just comes at space with compassion and understanding. Yeah. A very limited amount of understanding, as he still kind of uses the guy as the butt of jokes, but, but nonetheless. Yeah, but he certainly comes to him with more compassion than Tulip or Cassidy is showing, and he manages to diffuse him through a little basic human decency. Yeah, but I, I think that for Ennis... Arsface isn't, like, a means. He is an end. <laughs> you know? Uh, there are only, what, four, five characters that get special spin-off issues of Preacher, and Arsface is one of them? Uh, that's true. That's true. I mean, he's clearly, like, a staple character in this series, well, in the eyes of Garth Ennis. Yeah, I mean, Ennis, I think Ennis enjoys writing him and enjoys working with him, and... I don't know. Maybe for my taste, I find him a little too thin to support that. I can agree with you on that. Well, that brings us to the end of this preacher-centric episode of Vertiguys. On our next preacher-centric episode, we'll be wrapping up this New Orleans story arc. Biting into the snake surprise, so to speak. (laughs) But first, join us next week for Sandman and the first part of A Game of You. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I'm on social media duty. If you like our show, you should check out our website at vertiguise.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. Hey, we'd love to hear from people who are enjoying the show. We'd love to hear your questions, too. If you want to reach us, contact us on Twitter at Vertiguise. You can contact me on Twitter at BlankCastSean. You can reach us on Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast software you're using, if you could be so kind as to leave us a positive rating and review, that'll help grow the audience of the show and spread the word about vertiguys. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, because you used to say, Hey, everybody, welcome to the Vertiguys show, and now you're kind of NPRing it, you're kind of Hello and welcome to the Verti guys What's up with that? Because we have theme music now, and I don't think that the sad tone of the theme music really lends itself very well to segueing into Hey everybody! <laughs> <laughs> I see, so you were you were trying to get the attention before and now you're trying to come off of right our somber theme. I know I'm trying to come off of our somber theme, exactly. You don't want to sound like some mystical bad shit just happened, but I'm super fucking thrilled about it. <laughs> <that fucking poem. laughs> I'm fired up. <laughs> okay. <laughs>